So it's Pride Month, and today we're pushing past the yellow caution tape, and we're gonna have an honest look at the LGBTQ movement and why Christians are accused of making such a big deal about the subject. Why do you talk about that so much and not this? Well, are we picking and choosing which sins to care about, or is there something more to it? We'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker. Hey guys, thanks so much for watching today. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. In fact, go do that right now. What are you waiting on? Well, actually, okay, so wait after this episode and then you will be fully convinced that what you've just seen is an amazing episode that deserves you to like, share, and subscribe. And for the whole month of June, at least once a week, we're gonna be doing an episode on the LGBTQ movement in the intersection of Christianity. And the reason I wanna have that conversation is not even merely just to, to talk about Pride Month or to talk about the LGBTQ movement. But as I have been researching uh, this episode and other episodes that we've got coming in the future, I have really been captured and really kind of amazed. Uh, it doesn't take much for me, but amazed by the fact that there's so much conversation within the conversation about the, the existence of truth, existential realities, the death of God, secularism, moral relativism. There's all of these conversations couched within the conversation of pride issues. And so I find that it's really, really helpful to kind of push beyond the, the, the warnings and the cautions about hurting people's feelings and, and, and whatever other things may come in, uh, to try to deter you from having the conversation. It's so important to push past that because there's so much to unpack um, with this subject. And I'll give you, for instance, here with this story. A while back, I was taking a shuttle from where I live to uh, to Nashville to go on a international flight or to go to, to go to a flight across the country just because it was a bigger airport. So I was going across the country, and on the way there, I was um, I was speaking to a person in the shuttle ride with me. It's a young guy, um, and he told me that he was a Christian. Uh, I don't remember how the conversation came up exactly, but typically I find a way to try to interject faith conversations wherever I'm at. If you know me, that's that's what I do. That's that's my MO. Uh, so nonetheless, we started talking about faith conversations. He said, I just found a great church. Uh, it's really accepting and affirming of who I am because I'm a homosexual, and I haven't found a church that was really ever willing to accept who I am and affirm what I do. And I said, you know, this is really interesting because I've always wondered about this, so I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk with you about, about it. Um, so if you don't mind, I want to ask you a question. And he said, yeah, sure. And I said, so Jesus, um, in fact, I've built my ministry on this verse of scripture in some ways. Jesus said, if you want to be a follower of Christ, what you have to do is you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and deny yourself daily, in fact, if you actually want to be a follower of Jesus. So in, in many ways, Christianity is a religion that bids us to come and die more so than to be affirmed in what we're doing. It's, it's about rediscovering what truth is and, and pushing our identity and our desires and our preferences to the side and desiring him more so than what our personal pleasure or preferences may, may dictate. And when I said this to him, he said, well, I'd never heard that verse before. And, and this is why I have these conversations, why I think it's important to discuss. So this guy, and, and some of you may think to yourself, I, I don't even know if I believe that because that's such like a, a prototypical and important pivotal part of Christianity to know that Christianity is not about your preferences. Christianity is about accepting the truth that God has given to us via revelation 
and, and via scripture. So this guy genuinely didn't know that Christianity is less about the discovery of self and more about the denial of self. I mean, he genuinely didn't know that. And, and he seemed very, at least impressed upon or intrigued by the idea that Christianity is not about us figuring out what our preferences and our desires and then God patting us on the back for those things, but actually us trying to figure out the truth of God's word and then trying to position our life around that truth. And so this is why I think it's important to have these conversations because there are many people who have an understanding of Christianity that is illegitimate and then there's people who just aren't aware of things and, and to be able to have these conversations opens their eyes to things that they have never heard about before. And that's why I think it's important to have these conversations and why we're going to be doing it throughout the month of June. So I hope you'll follow along with us and even share this content with others who could benefit from it. Now, before we go any further and jump into what we're going to be talking about today, I want to first make mention of the fact that we are sponsored by Element Funding and the Kevin Blair team. You can go down to the show notes right now and you can see where you can access a link where you can go over to the Kevin Blair team and you can get pre-approved for a home loan today and lock in a fantastic rate before rates go up. I encourage you to do that because they are going to go up, but also I encourage you to do that because you will never find a better team than the Kevin Blair team in terms of serving your mortgage needs. So go over there to kevinblairteam.com today, and when you do so, let them know that IndieThinker sent you. There are many scare tactics used against Christians who try to discuss the subject of homosexuality and even the pride movement as a whole, and almost all of them are extortive tactics that shut down conversation rather than foster and promote really healthy conversations on the subject, which I think we, we need more of. Uh, I would hope that regardless of your, your um, identity today, you would agree with that. So a healthy society would ask questions about obvious contradictions, but there seems to be this kind of sleight of hand thing going on. Don't look over here. Uh, don't pay attention to this. Pay attention to this. When we get into the subject of sexuality, it's as though the label homophobe, religious zealot, or judgmental are a cover for something else that's going on that desperately needs to be engaged. But in my experience is if you push slightly past all kind of the, the talking around the subject of, of Pride Month and the LGBTQ community, you'll find that there are weak attempts from people that want to keep you from digging into what I think is a a very robust and important conversation to have, especially right now, and maybe even conversation to disagree upon. Disagreement is not bad, especially for the Christian. It's, it's important because at the root of this subject is whether or not we are going to use the Bible, and this is important here, will we use the Bible as an authoritative source for our faith, or are we going to use it as a companion to the life that we wish to live? In other words, here's what I'm asking. Are we over scripture or are we under it? While that may be a loaded statement that deserves a lot of conversation, at least for now, I just wanna, just wanna suggest this up front. I wanna discuss that this issue of homosexuality, of the LGBTQ community is important, not only because it's Pride Month, not only because the numbers of LGBTQ identifying Christians is on the rise, but also because at the heart of this issue is a desire to help others and find meaningful and beautiful and, and um, life-giving understanding of the life God intended for all of us to live. So when you are willing to adopt a biblical version of reality, your life is changed in almost every way you can think of and for the glory of God and for the benefit of your soul. So that's why I wanna talk about this stuff. I alluded to that 
in the story that I told at the beginning of the show, that, that telling that young man something he had never heard before was an opportunity for him to access information he never had. So today I'm gonna show you a clip and I'm gonna respond to it briefly. I'll provide some major talking points, but more than anything, I'll hope to answer the question above all else, why do Christians care so much about human sexuality? Why do they care about talking about homosexuality? Uh, the goofs over at the Holy Post, you know, Phil Vischer and co, uh, they call it crotch Christianity. Cosmo cosmic Christianity, and then there is crotch Christianity. I'm sorry, what did what? you say? Which is simply an attempt to dismiss this vitally important subject, which is often the habit of people who do not have the will or the ability to thoughtfully engage a subject such as this. But if you're willing to take that journey with me today, and as we discuss it through the rest of this month, I'll show you how human sexuality is at the root of God's divine design. So there's something much bigger. There's a bigger picture here. And, and I'll also show you how it is God's divine design is a direct refutation of that secular idiom that's causing damage to so many today. And that is this, to thine own self be true. Don't be true to yourself, be true to the truth. Only one of these paths channels human desire in the most beneficial and most flourishing ways. To prove that, here's a video by Matthew Vines that's racked up over a million views titled God and the Gay Christian, the Biblical Case in Support of Same-Sex Relationships. Marriage equality is on the rise. But despite this trend, religious beliefs remain a major obstacle to acceptance. Many conservative Christians believe that the Bible condemns all same-sex relationships. All right, so I'm going to be stopping in between little moments here and there where I think there's some important comments to make. Um, and I hate to stop so quick, and I promise I won't as quickly throughout the rest of this video. But I, I do got to stop right here and just say this. Religious beliefs remain an obstacle to acceptance. So quick question. Who said religious beliefs were meant to achieve acceptance? See, this is where I think we have to be very careful. Um, the suggestion here is a presupposition that is absolutely loaded. People have these kind of things all the, uh, people do these kind of things all the time. It is a logical fallacy called begging the question, which means you're trying to insert the answer into the question before we can even ask the question. And so here's this, the, the answer here, is that acceptance is the ultimate goal of religious belief. Well. According to who? When did we adopt this notion? How do we get so confused about what Christianity actually is and move the goalpost from accurately understanding who Jesus was to making sure that we are accepted? I, I frankly think that acceptance isn't all that important and I'm not interested in acceptance. I may say more about this at a later time, but this is the whole thing that I don't understand about the whole mantra that maybe you're not even aware of, but at least very, every single pastor is aware of this because they've been asked the question at some point in time in their life, are you welcoming and affirming? Okay, so I think the first one goes without saying that everybody should be welcome at a church. You should be welcome unless you're doing something that is disrupting the service or causing other people to, uh, to not be able to focus on the service or causing attention to yourself, whatever. Okay, so everybody should be welcome at a service. Should everybody be affirmed at a service? Like, since when was that the goal of Christianity? Or, quite frankly, the goal of anything? I think a couple of things here. First of all, this. If you need somebody else, another adult, to affirm what you are doing as an adult, then I would suggest that perhaps you're living in insecure ground and that ultimately you need to figure out if what you're doing is something 
that's truly acceptable before you can start looking for public acceptance for something that maybe you haven't even accepted yourself. Because here's the reality. If you have accepted it on a personal level, then it doesn't matter what anybody else says about this. I would even go as far as to say that about me today. Now, my hope is that you will see that there are some ways that I might be able to contradict or maybe to inform some beliefs that you already have. But quite frankly, if you know that your belief is firmly built upon a firm foundation, then you don't need to get the acceptance of other people telling you how great the idea is. So the whole pursuit of affirmation or acceptance in the homosexual lifestyle doesn't make any sense to me unless maybe deep down you know that there's something about it that shouldn't be accepted. But there's a more important point here. Christianity is about truth, not feelings. It's not about whether you feel accepted or not. In fact, I've heard it said before uh, that facts don't care about your feelings. Oh, wait a second, that's, that's a Jewish guy though, not a Christian guy, but nonetheless, it's true. The guy goes on in this video to say, like conservative Christians believe the Bible condemns same-sex relationships. That's the quote, right? Many conservative Christians believe that the Bible condemns all same-sex relationships. Conservative Christians believe that the Bible condemns same-sex relationships. Well, like, bro, conservative or not, I don't care. The reason people believe something is not as important as why they believe it. So the Bible condemns homosexuality, not conservative Christians. I, I, I catch all of this within something that maybe is a broader point. Be careful when you listen to people because sometimes they are begging the question and trying to tell you what to think before you have even had the opportunity to hear the argument. So let's be really clear here for the, throughout the duration of the rest of the comments of this video, my personal comments and about this video that we're watching. I am not interested in what Reed believes or or what this guy Matthew Vines believes. What I'm interested in more than anything is what is true. So put conservatives aside and put whether or not you feel accepted or not to the side. And let's talk about what is true to the best of our ability. So let's dig in a little bit more as we do that. That question drove my own intensive study of this issue when I came to terms with being gay. As both my parents and my church in Kansas believed that gay marriage was wrong. But what I learned when I studied the relevant scripture passages changed my parents' minds, along with the views of many other Christians in my life. There are six passages in the Bible that refer to same-sex behavior. So just real quick, uh, there are many more than six verses in the Bible that deal with homosexuality. You could talk about all the verses that show marriage and presuppose man and a woman. You could go back to Genesis. You could look at Judges 19, 16 through 24. You could look at 1 Kings 14 and 15. And you could look at the male prostitutes participating in homosexual activity. And, by the way, you could also look at Jude verse 7. Um, and speaking of Jude, you'll want to see what this individual has to say about Sodom and Gomorrah because this will kind of highlight the point directly. The most famous passage is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God sends two angels disguised as men into the city of Sodom, where the men of Sodom threaten to rape them. The angels blind the men, and God destroys the city. For centuries, this story was interpreted as God's judgment on same-sex relations. But the only form of same-sex behavior described is a threatened gang rape. So his contention here in this video is that the sin of Sodom was unwanted sexual advances, that it was lust on steroids. So sure, rape is one of the sins of Sodom, but so is all unbiblical sexual behavior in Jude 7. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah, they're in neighboring towns, which 
were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. So as we can clearly see, Jude 7 is alluding to the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened there was a sign, a warning of the eternal judgment of God upon the things that were practiced there at that time. But we're going to hear one more line of, of argumentation about the Bible and how the Old Testament says this, uh, but then it also says this, how come you Christians pick and choose? How come some of you Christians like to eat shrimp, but then when it comes to homosexuality, you say, well, that's unlawful, but the Bible says that both are unlawful. So we'll dig into that contention. So the ultimate idea here is, how come you Christians are picking and choosing? Uh, so let's, let's dig into his, his thoughts there. In Leviticus 18.22, male same-sex intercourse is prohibited, and violators are to receive the death penalty. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Other things called abominations in the Old Testament include having sex during a woman's menstrual period, eating pork, rabbit, or shellfish, and charging interest on loans. But they're part of the Old Testament law code, which was fulfilled by Jesus. Now, before we can get to the accusation of picking and choosing here, and even the contention that Jesus did away with all of the Old Testament kind of is the idea, or at least the, the old law was fulfilled in Jesus, I want to take a moment just to talk about the word abomination, okay? Because there are some technical, like, things where he's wrong. So a little housekeeping here. The Bible does not call eating pork an abomination. The Bible does not call usury an abomination. And the Bible does not call menstruating women an abomination. Okay, so what he's trying to do here is he's trying to lump things together so that he can accuse Christians of being pickers and choosers, right? So he's saying, how come you Christians want to eat your bacon, but then you say homosexuality is a sin, but the Old Testament clearly says both are a sin? Well, here's the problem. The Old Testament doesn't say that. The Old Testament warns against the eating of certain foods that are considered ceremonially unclean. So what he's talking about there is ceremonial law. And then there are other things where God says this is an abomination, such as homosexuality, adultery, incest, um, rape, all of these things. This is a different kind of law. This is moral law. So when Christians are picking and choosing, what they're actually doing is differentiating on things that the Bible says. Now, let me just be really clear about this too, so I don't forget to say it as I move forward. There's this notion too for, for many Christians that like all sins are the same. There's no difference in the eyes of God. Um, whether you steal a piece of gum or rape a child, all sin is sin. Well, in one way, yes, in that sin falls as a category where a lot of things fall under it, but not in the sense that all are equal. God understands this, right? He is not foolish. He understands that there is light years of difference between stealing a piece of gum and raping a child. So all sin is not sin in the same sense that they are all judged equivalently. So here's the point, is that there is a different kind of judgment for moral sins as there are for ceremonial sins. Let me show this to you specifically with menstruating women because that's such a delightful topic. So going back to Leviticus 18, where it talks about menstruating women, um, it also talks about a bunch of other things in that same context. It talks about incest. It talks about rape. It talks about uh, sleeping with your own mother. It talks about adultery, sleeping with your friend's wife. All, it talks about all of these other things. So let me ask a question. Who's picking and choosing here? 
I'm saying that that all of the things in Leviticus 18 have a legitimate explanation, while you're saying, oh, well, this verse about homosexuality is is problematic, but these other verses, well, of course, we don't believe in incest and adultery. Like, who would? So am I picking and choosing when I say homosexuality is wrong, or are you now picking and choosing in Leviticus 18 and saying, no, only some of it is wrong, but some of it is okay? Um, so. I just have this question: Is is it still relevant that uh, home that uh, incest is wrong? Is it still relevant that adultery is wrong? No, I don't think so. Very few people would agree that incest and adultery are great things to do. So actually, Leviticus 18 is then therefore still logically consistent, and in 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 my belief, and should be in yours, and should be upheld today, regardless of what we say about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. So let me just suggest, maybe we need more information to know why Leviticus 18 says in the midst of all of these things that we know to be wrong and then inserts menstruating women. Uh, maybe we need some more context here because all of these other things are obvious sins. Or perhaps this, we can assess all of these sins in light of this place where it talks about menstruating women. Um, we can assess it this way, that sex for the sake of pleasure alone is not God's ultimate plan. That's what Leviticus 18 seems to be saying. Perhaps not having sex with a menstruating woman is less about abomination since they don't even use that word there, but it's more about this. Sex is for fruitful replenishment of the human race. And you cannot do that with another man's wife. You cannot do that with your sister or your mom. And point in fact, you can't do that with a woman on her period. Well, why not? because women on their period are not physically capable of bearing children. So, for the benefit of the human race, it's best we don't participate in sexual activity just simply for the sake of our own lustful desires. And because it doesn't provide the requisite for human reproduction, which is a redemptive good. So hear me here. What I'm not saying is that the Bible says that sex between a husband and a wife can't be had simply for the sake of pleasure. Of course, that's true. But what I can tell you is that the ultimate redemptive purpose of sex within the context of marriage is the reproduction of the human race. Now, God is for that. And what God is trying to underscore, I think, in Leviticus 18 is, hey, sex isn't just about getting your rocks off. It's about something much bigger and more important than that. And so, you cannot bear children while you're on your period. And oh yeah, two men can't reproduce children at all under any circumstance. So don't do that either. That's what, what Leviticus 18 seems to be saying. But this brings us to the real reason homosexuality is practiced and why we as Christians should focus on it and why when doing so, we're not picking and choosing. We're not just saying, oh, well, sexuality is this gross sin, but obesity and blah, blah, blah. Uh, we specifically focus on homosexuality because it is a different kind of sin. Yes, it's a violation of human flourishing and it's a violation of God's natural order. I mean, you can look at the differences instilled in people biologically. You don't even have to go to the Bible for this. And you can realize complementarianism exists. God created a man and a woman to complement each other. He did not create men with those body parts because two men are not supposed to be together. So nature and biology tells you this reality. But even beyond that, there's something deeper at play here. And I'll let John Piper kind of explain and then I'll go from there. John Piper at Desiring God says this, that homosexuality is wrong because in a sense it is the original sin. And he says this, 
as I reflect on Romans 1 and the way Paul unpacks the problem with homosexuality. It appears to me that Paul is saying something like this. When you exchange the glory of God for idols, the main one that you exchange for the glory of God is yourself. The idol that you have is yourself. Well, what sex is yourself? My sex is male. If you're a woman watching this, your sex is female. And he seems to draw out the fact that in exchanging God for our most cherished idol, which is usually self, we are prone to fall in love with the same sex. So you're following the logic? So implication here is same sex attraction is a dysfunctional form of idolatry. So, so do you understand what he's saying right there? That ultimately behind the sin of homosexuality is the sin of idolatry. Because idolatry in its greatest form is not bowing down and worshiping a statue. Idolatry in its greatest form is not, you know, Buddha hanging out over in your closet and then you burning some incense to that dude. Uh, it's not even what we see in the Old Testament with golden calves and all these things. Idolatry was really always historically and continually this. Because you can find idolatry in Christianity. Idolatry is creating God in your own image. So if you're going to do that where sex is concerned, well then it makes sense that the ultimate form of idolatry in terms of sexual attraction and sexual relationships would be to idolize your own sex. If you're a male, to idolize maleness. If you're a female, to idolize femaleness. So in other words, homosexuality is really simply loving yourself, which is idolatry. Let me explain it just a little bit of a different way. Within Christianity, there's this conversation. It's called side A and side B. Side A are Christians who are practicing homosexuals and rejoice in their practice of homosexuality and believe that it is a godly good to practice any form of sexuality that you identify with. That's side A. And I hope I believe that that is a faithful representation of what side A is. Side B is the idea that you are a Christian with same-sex attraction, but you refuse to practice it and refuse to celebrate it. And so what you do probably is you are celibate or you're actively you know, attending um, a small group or something like that to try to help you and you're around other people who are dealing with the same thing. And you, suffice to say, you identify as a homosexual, but you're not a practicing homosexual because you're trying to, you're trying to push back against that feeling that's inside of you for the sake of trying to be as scripturally honest as you possibly can. So here's a couple of problems with that. Is that I think side B Christianity does something similar to what side A Christianity does. I think it gives in too much to the premise and it makes God in your own image. It, it violates what ultimately is God's divine design for each and every person. Now, I don't have time to get into it, and I want to push it to one side, actually, just suffice to say that there is absolutely no scientific, no biological, no evidence to confirm or to show that we can prove scientifically that a person is born trans, that a person is born lesbian, gay, queer, or anything like that. This has been talked about for the longest time. What if one day we prove that there's something inside of the brain of a LGBTQ person and it was something that they were created as and not something that they can do anything about? I, I have to be honest with you, as a pure red-blooded man, 
I can, I, I don't know that you can prove it, uh, at least scientifically, but I can tell you there's something about me that likes women. But that does not mean that I give in to those, that those, those affections, but that I actively fight against those things by not only not participating in them, but by seeking to really, to really get delivered from those things. So I guess here's what I'm saying at the end of the day is that I, while I appreciate side B, I am not threatened by side B by saying that side B, I think, does this one thing. It denigrates God down to a powerless being. It makes God human. It makes him so that you couldn't be delivered from that same sex attraction or, or from that feeling that you have because you surely can. Now, in the process, we, we, we praise and we welcome the individual who is maybe uh, identifying with that side B kind of thing, who's fighting that thing. And we realize that not everybody gets deliverance in the same timeline. But I don't want to give in to the premise where the rest of your life, you're just going to have to be celibate. You're just going to have to give in to the fact that this is the way that you're made and God's asking you just to fight against your, your better nature. No, I, I want to try to instill hope in everybody that's watching here today. You don't have to give in to side B. And you certainly don't have to give in to side A. You can be set free from these affections and these afflictions. Just like all sins for any human, yes, you deny yourself and you push against those tendencies, but you also believe that God can help you overcome them in a, in a supernatural way. And this is why we desperately need to not boil God down to an idol made in our own image. Where, where God is not powerful enough to help us, but merely just to come alongside of us and just to be our friend and to pat us on the back while we, while we deal with these things. Ultimately, I'm saying this, is that there is hope and there is deliverance from this. And, and if we don't speak that, then ultimately what we may be doing is merely worshiping ourselves. Because certainly in ourselves, we don't have the power to overcome those things. And if we are merely worshiping ourselves, then what we are doing is we're practicing the oldest sin of the Bible. We're practicing what happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Satan said, the serpent said, has God really said, did God say this and did God say that and, you know, surely God would want you to do this. All the while, neither Adam or Eve have eaten from the tree of life and they've never truly experienced life, so they don't understand what life looks like. But it is this temptation now and for all of history to practice the original sin of idolatry, to to question God's word and to try to repackage God's word. The has God said version of Christianity where we say, God says what I want him to say. And if I don't like what God says, I'll try to figure out a way to make him say what I want him to say. And so ultimately it comes back to this question. Is the Bible the source of truth and the source for Christian living? If you would agree with that, then ultimately we're going to have to stop pushing aside the very obvious contentions of scripture in order to try to fit our lifestyle into the scripture where we're trying to mold scripture in our image rather than molding who we are in the image of God. So this goes back all the way to that place where the image of God was fully formed, where we see that God made them male and female and he made the male to complement the female. To deny that is to buck God's natural order. And to buck God's natural order is to fly in the face of human flourishing and that which is good for all people at all times. So this is why we as Christians speak about this issue. 
Not because we're picking and choosing one sin over another, but because the issue of homosexuality really is the original sin in a roundabout way. It is the sin of idolatry. It is the sin of trying to malign the truth and shape and mold the truth after our image rather than obeying the truth and submitting to the truth. And this is what God has called each and every one of us to do. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a Christian who's struggling with their sexuality or not, here's what I would encourage you to do, to just simply ask this simple question. Are you called to obey God or is God called to obey you? Once you answer that simple question, then you will know what you are supposed to do with all of your sexual proclivities. And in doing so, what you'll find is the life that you were intended to have, full of everything that you could ever hope for. No, probably not. Still difficult, yes, in many ways, but not powerless to overcome the sexual urges and desires that you have. Ultimately, this is what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant between you and your wife where even though you as a man, and perhaps you as a woman, may have inside of you a desire that could be fulfilled with another, you, you say, you make a decision, I will not fulfill that desire with another. I will put that desire to death and I will trust God to give me a greater and more beneficial and more human flourishing desire. And that's why we choose to speak on this issue and choose to speak on it firmly and without equivocating on the issue and why we must always do so and why we must always push back when anybody says, well, this is just the fundamentalist interpretation or the conservative interpretation. No, this is what scripture says. And we have to ask the question if we're going to obey it or not. All right, guys, that's all the time we have for today. If this video, uh, this podcast was helpful to you, then please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Thanks so much for watching. We'll catch you next time. You can catch brand new episodes of Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman every Monday and weekly bonus episodes to keep you thinking throughout the week. But you have to subscribe and click the bell to be notified when new episodes drop. If you enjoy this content, make sure to like this video and share it with friends.